Hello and welcome to the Downtown Trash, a podcast exploring the weekly parasha. My name is Dr. Michal Bitton and I am the Rosh Keila of the Downtown Minyan. I am here with my podcast co-host and colleague Rabbi Joe Wolfson, JLIC Rabbi at the Bronfman Center of NYU. Today we are recording some thoughts on Tisha B'Av, the Jewish National Day of Mourning, which is going to occur this Wednesday uh, night, and also on the, uh, sorry, Wednesday night and Thursday day, and also on this coming uh, parasha, Parashat Vayet Hanan. So Rabbi Joe, let's start with Tisha B'Av because it's really coming up closer in the calendar. Can you tell us a little bit about what is this day and what we are commemorating? Hey Michal, great to, great to be back uh, recording. Yeah, absolutely. So in, in some ways, you, know, you and I have spent uh, many weeks deep in conversation about Sefer Bamidbar. That ultimate moment of tragic failure in Bamidbar, when the spies return with their report and convince the people that the journey to the land of Israel is in fact a dangerous illusion. It's not something that they can marriage, manage. According to the Midrash, God says to the Jewish people at that point, you have cried today for no reason. I will now give you a reason to cry on this day. And in the rabbinic tradition, this is the original Tisha B'Av, the ninth of Av, which is then going to be a day which is imprinted with sadness and which is the um, the, the date on which a litany, a long list of collective tragedies have occurred to the Jewish people. Now, in actual historical terms, the two events which are most closely associated with Tisha B'Av, the ninth of Av, are the destruction of both temples. The first temple destroyed in the year 586 before the Common Era by the Babylonians. And then the second temple destroyed about 650 years after that by the Romans in the year 70 CE. Both of these terrible Khurban destructions of the temple resulting in exile, the first a relatively short one of a couple of generations to Babylon, and the second one really which Jewish history views us as still being in until this day. Over the generations, it's been associated with the darkest days in Jewish history. And it is observed as a fast day, a day, a 24-hour fast, the only other one alongside Yom Kippur where Jews do not eat or drink for a whole day. We read Megillat Echa, the book of Lamentations, which is a sort of eyewitness account to the days and weeks after the destruction of the first temple. And we also read Kinot, which have been written sort of poetic laments over the generations written, whether it be for the Crusades or other other tragic moments. So that is Tisha B'Av. So Michal, with all of that, that huge, huge, heavy, dark, tragic baggage, which is the history of Tisha B'Av, how do you relate to the day? So, um, yeah, Tisha B'Av is a um... It's a challenging day. Let me start by telling you how I learned to mourn on Tisha B'Av. Uh, I would say that I learned it from my uh, my mom's dad, my grandfather, um, who, who passed away a couple of years ago. Uh, I spent one Tisha B'Av with him when I was a teenager in Israel in Ashdod, and I saw him sitting on the floor reading Kinot, reading, um, how do you say Kinot in English? Uh, reading 
sad uh, poems, I guess, about different uh, uh, moments um, in Jewish history. And he would sit there and he would read about, you know, children forcibly converted or killed after the Spanish expulsion. And there would be literally tears, uh, you know, streaming down his face. And, and my grandfather would really cry as though he was mourning very beloved people. Uh, and as though he was really mourning uh, terrible tragedies that continue to impact us today. And I'm mentioning this because even as even as my grandfather's memory inspired me and continues to inspire me in terms of Tisha B'Av, I also think that we increasingly have some challenges in terms of connecting to this day. And I want to mention, uh, I, I want us to spend a little bit of time actually trying to tease out what are some of the challenges that that I think many people that we talked to before Tisha B'Av, uh, uh, you know, share uh, in terms of approaching this day. Um, and let, let's, let me start with a theological challenge, if it's okay. And I think that this, okay, because theology is awesome. Uh, but <laughs> this, this challenge really, I think, became crystallized to me uh, a couple of years ago. Sion and I, my husband and I, went on a trip. Um, and one of the places we visited was, uh, went to Croatia. Um, we stopped by a bunch of synagogues, of course, every place Beautiful that we went country. to. country. I love Croatia. Yes, gorgeous country. I wish we could travel Recommend there Recommend right it now. to everybody. Yeah. And, and in every city we went to, we, we stopped and tried to find remnants of Jewish history and Jewish life. And we stopped in this synagogue. And it was also a couple of days uh, or weeks before, before Tisha B'Av. We stopped in this, in this synagogue in Dubrovnik. And it was this beautiful little synagogue. And I, I became very emotional there because there were all of these documents showing how Jews who had escaped the, the Spanish expulsion and inquisition, like Doña Gracia Mendez, had been traveling and they found refuge in different places. And wherever they went, even as they were escaping Jewish persecution, persecution of Jews, sorry, they were able to establish synagogues and continue gathering together as Jews. And this synagogue survived inquisitions, it survived persecutions, it survived the Holocaust, right? It survived so many uh, so many different things and there were still Jews, you know, very recently trying to make sure that it continued to serve as a synagogue and that it was a place for Jews. And 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 then that same year, going to Tisha B'Av and sitting down and reading all of the liturgy and writings in which we spoke of Jewish persecution and we didn't only describe it, we also kind of gave it a theological explanation saying it is because Jews sinned that we were persecuted so much and that we deserved all of this punishment. So so this became increasingly hard for me and I'm sharing it here as a struggle at a time in which I think we feel very uncomfortable kind of victim blaming and saying Jews are to blame because of anti-Semitism or because of persecution. And also when we have uh, increased admiration for how Jews worked so hard to preserve Judaism and their communities, even across all of these persecutions, how do we connect to a day in which so much of the liturgy and the writings are basically saying, yes, all of these terrible things happened to us, but it was because we deserved it and because we sinned. Right. So, so it's a mismatch you're saying between, on the one hand, our wanting to recognise and, and deeply remember and mourn for these, these terrible moments within our history, on the one hand. But on the other hand, the, the texts and the tefillot, which we classically use for that, are ones which don't really fit with our, with our understanding of, of, why, of why evil happens. Is that correct? 
well, I don't know if all of our understandings, but at least my approach, which I think is a pretty modern post-Holocaust Jewish approach of basically trying to, to say terrible, terrible things happen to our people, but, but we're not going to say that like, the we did terrible things to deserve them. Yeah. But we're going to say that we don't understand the hand of God, that, that, that we mourn this. But right. so, so there's something that feels really painful to me at least, and also theologically difficult, to both mourn the killing of Jews, destructions of temples, and also to grapple yeah, with liturgies in which we say we deserve this. Mm. So before we maybe try to tackle the question, I guess I want to add another challenge, almost, uh, almost the opposite challenge, I think. And that is that the difficulty is, is not um, the liturgy, not, not the texts of Tisha B'Av, the, the, the contemporary difficulty of Tisha B'Av for the modern Jew is actually the and safety that we experience for the most part. Now, I say that um, with absolute complete uh, awareness that many people are thinking, what are you talking about? Anti-Semitism is in the news the whole time. I'm still very much casing, uh, which just in the last, you know, leave aside just the last election and the question of anti-Semitism and the Labour Party, but even just over the last 72 hours, the community has been rocked by anti-Semitism that uh, has been received from a very well-known figure in the music industry there. But even even acknowledging and accepting all that, the, the, the extent of Jewish suffering over the over the centuries really seems to dwarf the the situation which most Jews find themselves in, which is one prosperity where they feel the governments are on their side, certainly in Israel as well. And from that position of great comfort and, and, and a sense that, you know, I don't feel another Holocaust or Inquisition is going to happen right now. How then do I relate to Tisha B'Av? Right. So, so in a sense, we're naming two challenges here, let's say, uh, challenges to that I'm posing uh, next to my, my grandfather's image of sitting down and, and literally crying. One is that we are most on the most part doing well. So it's like, how can we sit down and feel? Well, and I, I guess if I can add an anecdote, you know, if we're thinking through our grandparents, you gave a beautiful description of your grandfather and the way in which he connected to Tisha B'Av. You know, my, my grandmother's apartment where she lived in, in Düsseldorf in Germany was, was smashed up on Kristallnacht. Her, her mother had migraines at that time of year for the rest of, of her life. Um, and, you know, that in, in many ways is, you know, is a part of the, the broad span of Jewish history. We feel so, you know, even though she was my grandmother and I loved her so, so dearly, but the, the, the decades, generations which separate us have been such fundamentally different. I can't imagine what you know, a, a potential Kristallnacht happening to us. Right, right. So, right. So, so challenge number one, let's say, if I, let's start with yours, is we are in a contemporary situation where the sort of destruction that we think of in Tisha B'Av feels very removed, thank God, from our lives. Challenge number two is a theological challenge. How can we connect to... Uh, a day of mourning in which our liturgy and words actually blame historical Jews for their for, for the terrible persecution they experience. And I'll add one third challenge, if it's okay here, that I actually uh, just thought of. Uh, I actually think that, you know, I, I, I used to have, we have different journeys in our lives, and I used to have times in my life when I was more connected to Haredi communities, right? I, I, act, I, I was more 
involved in, in Haredi forms of Judaism uh, and Haredi, um, I guess I would say, ideology. And back then, we talked about the Mashiach, the Messiah, and the Beit HaMikdash, the Temple, really often. There was something there that we that it was something really present in our Judaism as something that we always spoke of as like, ah, if only the Mashiach was here, or what can we do to bring the Mashiach you know, closer? It was very much part of our you know, conversation. So in a sense, Tisha B'Av, when I was back in that world, it was easier to connect to it because I felt this palpable absence in my life. There's no Mashiach yet. There's no Beit HaMikdash. Uh, and I'm just adding as a challenge for in the communities that we inhabit that don't necessarily have um, so much of a, of a discourse or consciousness focusing on Mashiach and the temple all the time, then it's also harder to feel a little bit of an absence, right? Like, what are we, what are we really missing? Do we want a, a, an edifice in Temple Mount where we sacrifice, you know, uh, um, meats and animals to God. Like, is that something that we really, uh, that we really know how to connect to? There's almost like an absence of something that we can't fully understand, if that makes sense. Right. Yeah. So, so let, let's try and do the following, Michal. Here, here's our challenge. Let, let me try and propose one partial solution to your difficulty, and you try and pose a partial solution to, to my one. Should we, should we give ourselves that challenge? Um, sure, but you go first. <laughs> okay, so, so so you've said that today we don't identify with with a, a a religious logic which says we are being punished for our sins, and I I, I understand that I I hear that. However, I think that when we more closely examine a lot of of our foundational texts to do with suffering, we actually see something quite quite interesting, and and, and nuanced. Um, we, we, the, the, the texts, the Talmudic texts and, and ones afterwards as well, definitely do speak of, of punishment coming on, on account of sin. But I think it's really interesting to unpack that. Now, the, there are, you know, the, 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 the sources give us different reasons. So we are told that the, the first temple was destroyed because of Avodazara, Gilui Arayot, Damim, these three cardinal sins of, of idolatry, of, of sexual immorality, of, of spilling of blood. And the second temple was destroyed because of Sinatrinam, because of, of causeless hatred. And to tell you the truth, those are sorts of shorthands, because the tradition contains many, many um, different. Uh, reasons that's given. I, I've been teaching recently the Midrashic collection known as Echa Rabba, um, and of all the reasons that appear in the first chapter of, of Echa Rabba. And it's, you know, it's amazing. They did not keep Shabbat. They were cruel to non-Jews. They took advantage of the poor. They had no righteous people in their midst. They stopped doing mitzvot and good deeds. They were false prophets. They spilt innocent blood. They were joyous at the downfall of their fellow men. They did not turn to Hashem in, in repentance. They were they were arrogant. They hated one another needlessly. They ate chametz on Pesach. My favourite one, probably your favourite one, Michal, they did not pay their teachers enough. They did not keep, uh, they did not keep Yom Kippur, etc., etc. Now, I have not finished reading the list. So, I guess one way of viewing it is as this is heaping abuse on Israel. But I actually think that something else is going on. I, I often teach this to people and I, and I say, what reason is, is not here? And people think hard and they suggest clever things. And I say, no, 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 it's a lot more basic. You know what reason is not here? That we were simply overwhelmed by the might of the Babylonian army. Simply overwhelmed by 
the might of the Roman Empire. That does not appear. And something really interesting psychologically is, is happening whereby the defeats and the destruction are actually not the consequence of our enemy's prowess, but rather the agency lies with us. And all of these things which I read, these many, many, many sins which the sages say are responsible for the destruction, are things which can be fixed. They are not things which we have no choice over right now. Right? We can do more to, to love one another. We can be less arrogant. We can you know, commit ourselves more to, to, to Jewish practice. We can pay our teachers more. Uh, you know, the, the, these are, the, the agency remains with the Jewish people. And I, I, can, I just feel like over history, as such tremendous and beautiful chutzpah, pardon me for an Ashkenazi word, right? Such, such wonderful chutzpah to be able to say to, to Babylon, destroyed, you haven't. Actually, it's only us and our relationship with God. And we've got a longer term uh, ledger book than mm. you do. That's um, it's a bit haunting and also beautiful in a, in a haunting way. Um, so basically what you're suggesting is that is that the, 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 the liturgical choices themselves and are an act of resistance. And, 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 and political, yeah. Yeah, political resistance in which you basically say this is not the narrative of oppressors and the non, not the narrative of, of those empires, which, by the way, don't exist anymore. It's actually our narrative and we are writing it and it has to do with our choices and our actions. That's right. That's right. Well, uh, I think that's a very powerful way, actually, of um, of approaching Tisha B'Av uh, and of trying to, um, to to also figure out how to relate to, to the liturgy and to the, the words we read. I don't know if I'm going to have such an elegant way uh, of, of addressing your concern, Rabbi Joe, uh, the challenge that you brought, which you're saying, like, in our in our contemporary situation, it's very difficult, right, to, to relate to the mourning. Um, of Tisha B'Av, we feel uh, we feel very lucky um, indeed. So I guess just a couple of thoughts that come to mind, uh, and then if you have a better sorry, I'll, I'll add one more oh. difficulty. Oh, but mine isn't, isn't good. <laughs> okay, go ahead. No, but, but it's not just that we live in a state of comfort necessarily. It's also that we live with a state of Israel, and we can go to Israel, and we can go to Yerushalayim, and Yerushalayim is great, and we love Yerushalayim. And so how can I feel the mourning over Jerusalem when Yerushalayim is, is, is great right right now? Yeah, and, uh, and I think this question gets strong. I spend most of my summers in Israel, so um, because of Corona, like, you know, we're not there right now, but uh, <laughs> uh, most of my Tisha B'Avs have been in Jerusalem, and, and um, many of them, and, and, it's, and it's very difficult, like you're saying, to sit down in the streets of Jerusalem, which feel rebuilt and to say they are destroyed. I'm being terrible today because I'm not letting you answer, but I'm just, I want to ask, what to have the, <laughs> the wall of tears? You don't hear that word phrase anymore. Yeah. Yeah. It's, uh, I, I, I am, I'm with you. Um, I think, again, this should be a conversation, so you're not just putting all the challenges on me. Um, <laughs> but uh, <laughs> I think a couple of things. I, I, even if I don't connect so much to the, uh, the, 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 the challenges that previous generations had, I think that there's something in actually your, your response to me that continues to, can continue to serve us in this. I think that the, the situation right now with the state of Israel and generally also the American Jewish community is one of tremendous power and tremendous agency. 
And part of the way that we can connect to the story of Tisha B'Av is by studying the historical records and learning about the power and agency that Jews often had and about the tremendous folly uh, and you can say like national, um, t- terrible national decisions, mistakes uh, and misdeeds that our leadership throughout history at times um, uh, undertook. I know for me, when I when I study the, the, the history of, of Hurbana Bayechini, the second temple and its destruction, um, and when we learn about the, I mean, can I say civil war for this? But there was like so much war amongst Jewish factions to the extent that some historians suggest that so much of the way that the Roman Empire was able to conquer uh, um, the Jewish rebels and Judea really had to do with the infighting within the Jewish people. Uh, that we were partially responsible, and I'm not saying responsible in a theological way, I mean responsible in terms of political folly, in terms of, of, of just like national political suicide. So there, there's something there that when we actually confront the Jewish power and agency that preceded the Hurban, the destruction, that actually brings us really close to home. And that reminds us that even as we say never again, never again can be like a prayer, it can be a wish, it can be a resolution, but it cannot be a promise because we've been at situations in which we had power and national sovereignty before and in which we squandered it. So I think that that kind of studying and learning in which we really confront the, the history uh, is actually really elemental, elementary, sorry, uh, really critical in order to approach things today. Um, the second thing I would say here, and I'm not sure how this resonates with you, for me, sometimes Tisha B'Av involves a lot of thinking and trying to grapple with history and liturgy and and theology, like we said, but some of it, I also, again, bringing my grandfather again, some of it for me also has to do with simple mourning and simple emotional, like like finding a way to be emotionally responsive to the, the suffering of generations of Jews and the sort of cry of, of generations of Jews uh, in light of anti-Jewish persecution, oppression, um, and displacement. So so here, what, I, what I'm trying to suggest it, is that, um, there's enough flexibility in the day for each of us individually to ask ourselves what is emotionally moving, right? What are the different, uh, we have access to so much right now in terms of text and in terms of, of movies and media uh, and testaments of, of Jewish history. Like what, what do we each individually connect to besides for the classical liturgy that will actually enable us to mourn, to, to literally feel pain in our hearts? Yeah, I, I think I think both of those are beautiful. The Tisha B'Av we are and conduct ourselves as a Jewish community and especially in a position of power and and the opportunity to, to reflect and connect to this. So so with all that, it's it's also going to be shortly after Tisha B'Av, Parashat Vet Hanan. So let's at least spend a few minutes, Michal, thinking about the, as well. So I'll give a bit of a summary, but it's a very long parasha. Uh, so just a disclaimer, I'm not fully <laughs> describing it, but I want to give a little bit of context and summary of uh, of the parasha. So Parashat Vaitchanan is the second parasha in the book of Devarim, the fifth book of the Torah, and it continues what began in last week's parasha, which is really um, a series of three speeches that Moshe is giving the people of Israel a little under a month uh, before he he passes away, so he knows that he doesn't have so much left to live. Um, sorry, not under a month, a little, um, a little over five weeks. He knows he has maybe like five weeks or so to live. They are in the plains of Moab before they enter the land of Canaan. Moshe is speaking to a generation 
of people who either weren't born or were children when they left Egypt and when they had the Theophany at Sinai and when there was the scene of the spies. So he's really speaking to a new generation and he knows he's not going to continue to lead them. So he gives like the speech of his life. He's giving a series of speeches in which he tries to impart what he believes are the most fundamental ideas that he can give them before they enter the land of Israel. And Vaidhanan begins with a personal message of Moshe in which he reminds his audience that he begged God, Vaidhanan, I begged Hashem to enter the land and Hashem didn't let them because of, of different reasons. And then Moshe begins talking about different themes. And if I had to, to really summarize, the main theme in Vaidhanan is the theme of covenant the theme of, of Berit. Um, Moshe reminds the people uh, in front of him that they are not just descendants of, of, of slaves who left Egypt and were liberated by God, but that they are born into a bilateral covenant that God undertook with the Jewish people. He reminds them that if they sin or they betray the covenant, there will be consequences and punishments for it. So it's not the sort of thing that you can walk away from. He reminds them that the covenant also was uh, embodied in a theophany. So he actually describes the Ma'amad al-Sinai, the theophany at Sinai, describes the sort of environment in which this was given. Uh, we have here the re-saying uh, of the Aseret Adibrod, the 10 um, utterances, often translated in English as the Ten Commandments, which Moshe repeats again to the generation. We have the, 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 the first part of Shema and Be'avta, which Moshe is sharing again uh, with the people. And there's like a general a general sense of Moshe turning to this generation that's going to enter the land without him and saying, hey, you're born into this covenant that you have to follow. If you follow God's word, you will have a promised land and you will have ample reward. And if you betray it, you will have a punishment. Again, there's a lot of other things mentioned. We have a lot of famous phrases. We have a verse about being Amsegula, kind of like a chosen nation uh, by God. Um, and um, and yeah, I said, I said a bunch. So Rabbi Joe, when you, when you hear all of this talk of, uh, of covenant, what, what stands out to you at listening Parashat Vayetchanan as really significant? Well, you know, there's, there's, there's so much there. It, it, it is a long parasha, and as, as, you, as you said, this this whole sefer really is essentially going to be Moshe's speeches. It's three speeches, um, really the, by far the longest one. Yes, you know, think of the gems of this parasha. We have perhaps the two most um, canonical or I iconic um, statements of, of Jewish faith in this parasha. It's you know, remar remarkable they're both in the same parasha. One is the Ten Commandments, and the other is the Shema. And I guess it, I, I'm, I'm really intrigued to think about um, the differences between the two and, and the role that they both serve for, for us as Jews. Because you know, we... we we say the Shema um, uh, twice a day, morning and night. It's the, the line which is taught to small children. And in fact, it used to be the case even the Ten Commandments were part of the daily service as well, although this fell out of practice. So, so what do you see between the two, Michal? Are they similar to one another or are they, are they, are they very different from one another? Um, so, so, of course, there's some similarities, uh, but also uh, differences. I think when I when I approach them, the the Aseret Adivot as a whole feel more 
I'm trying to see what's the right word here. They feel more distant. I don't know if I, I'm trying to, to, to try to... Hard to, to relate to? No, I feel like they, they remind... I mean, there's some scholarship that, that shows the, the similarity between this and other like Near Eastern uh, um, covenants of the time. So there are certain things here that that make sense as the sort of laws of many nations. Mm -hmm. So there's something that feels almost universal about this uh, in terms of like, okay, like I am your God, you're, you're with me. And then like we have... Uh, certain uh, civil ordinances and criminal ordinances and, and things like that. And then when I think about the Shema, there's something here that feels much more, um, is the right word personal? I don't know what's the right word here, but particularistic, is that the right word? Uh, of like saying like Shema Israel. there's something here about Israel listening to this. We talk about love, love your God. We talk about putting these things like on your heart. We talk about reminding it to our children on every moment of our day. So, so I, I conceive of them in some level as Aseret Adivrod feels to me as something that has more resemblance to some like universal codes of laws. And then the, the Shema um, and the Avta, which again is about love and devotion, just feel a bit more particularistic. I'm not, I'm not sure if you, if you relate to what I'm saying or if you have a different read. I think that's interesting. We, we speak so much about how the Torah is both a particular hymn, but though, you know, such an important, critical uh, to, to the world. So I, I, it's interesting that you see that distinction lying between the Shema and the Aseret Hadibrot. I guess for me, I, I see the difference as they speak to different parts of, of who I am, of, of who I am as a, as a religious person, that uh, trans, you know, it's not a literal translation, uh, the Ten Commandments, but many of them are commandments. You Shabbat, you don't steal, you respect your parents, etc. So, you know, uh, defined, concrete, uh, legal actions. Whereas the Shema is so much about a mindset. And you're going to love God. And, you know, I, I really like to think that much of the, of the essence of Judaism is in the combination between two, between what we might call internality, an interior element on the one hand, and on the other, a real-world action. And both of those are caught here together in our parsha. That's beautiful. So you're saying we, in our covenant and in our religious personalities, we have to both center actions, right? And also a devotional orientation uh, and feelings of, of relationship um, with, with Boreolam, with the Creator. I think so. I think so. Wow, it looks like we are coming to the end of our time today and we have tried into it as well this has been the downtown drash thank you for our conversation and please do join us to learn torah every week